Off the ball. There's so many players, like someone like Martinetti and whatnot, that you can get in that look in. Brazil are going to win that World Cup, lads, and I think it's an absolute bank. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now then, Sunday Papers, you're very welcome bring you through the back pages first off Sunday World we should uh, mention very top of the Sunday World Golden Girls because it's been an extraordinary uh, performance by the Irish boxers over the past week picture of Kelly Harrington holding a gold medal as is her uh, general habit these days Amy Broadhurst as well Aoife O'Rourke three gold medals Golden Girls they lead the way of the uh, ten fighters who were out at the European Championships uh, ten Irish fighters seven came home with medals which is just extraordinary and then picture Jurgen Klopp and his face paints a picture just slack jawed as he looked on yesterday Klopp admits he's in very big trouble after embarrassing defeat at Forest uh, crippling uh, result for Liverpool writes Kevin Palmer and Klopp said afterwards his side are as low as possible it feels as low as possible massive massive blow I have no idea how we could lose that game and he said we had to make some late changes. We didn't train with this formation for one second, but that is not an excuse. We have to win this game. So they'll go 14 points behind Arsenal if they uh, Arsenal win today against Southampton. Back page then of the Sunday Mirror. Top picture is Jurgen Klopp looking down. You can't really see his face. Baseball cap on. Klopp's forest fire. And then below that, Chris and make-up, as in kiss and make-up. It's a picture of Ten Hag and Ronaldo and... Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has told Eric Ten Hag he wants to uh, fight for his place, which I don't know if that's going to work out very well. Many things and on various fronts. We'll come to that in a moment. And then uh, picture Casemiro after his equaliser at Sanford Bridge yesterday. I mean, it's Casemiro. Talked about his water carrier when he arrived, and and maybe in the company of Modric and Cruz, he didn't stand out as the ball player of that trio. But in Manchester United's midfield, he was fantastic on the ball last night. I think he's surprising a few people. Uh, Sun Sport then they have uh, Brainless Ruthless Fearless the Brainless is Klopp the Ruth it's a bit harsh Ruthless is Haaland and Fearless is Casemiro is the back page of the uh, Sun then we have Mail on Sunday it's a picture of Rob Russell scoring a try for Leinster last night Blues Cruise Russell's late try seals bonus point for Leinster as they hold off Dogged Munster Youngsters Leinster 27 Munster 13 if you missed it last night at the Aviva. And then an interesting story here. Shane McGrath, back page. Call for sports funding to be linked to discipline. So this is a Fianna Fáil TD. Neve Smith, she's TD for Cavan Monaghan. She's on the Oireachtas uh, Joint Committee for Tourism, Culture, Art and Sport as well. And she's saying that maybe funding for various organisations should be linked to discipline. Sunday Independent then. The picture is of Joey Carberry looking on as Leinster scoring the try, Dan Sheehan going over and then Klopp, we only have ourselves to blame. And then the Sunday Times, a picture of Joey Carberry at the very top and it's Carberry and Munster beaten 27-13 by Leinster. And then the other picture is, uh, it's a great one, of Kepa at Stamford Bridge last night. He's just got a touch to Casemiro's header, it's come off the upright and now he's trying to frantically grab the ball before it crosses the line. Point made is the uh, headline. And beneath that, Kenny hits out at critics stuck in the Charlton era. Very happy to say we have Gavin Casey of the 42 here in the studio. Gav, thanks for popping up this Thank morning. You. Appreciate it. And Shane Keegan, co-Ramblers manager, you're very welcome as well. Good job. I'm great. So Kenny hits out at critics stuck in Charlton era. Seeing as that's in front of me here on the 
front page of the Sunday Times. This is an interview in the uh, Currency on the Currency podcast. And so he has called critics who criticise him as being, quote, institutionalised. Going back to the Jack Charlton era, which was an amazing era, what brought success was a certain way of playing. A lot of teams, a lot of ex-players have played that way. They didn't believe we had the players to play another way. They're institutionalised and we are institutionalised. Some journalists were part of that era. People are institutionalised into thinking there's no other way. I know that can sound quite strong. I do get that. I'm not trying to insult anyone, he says. He's asked about the Brian Kerr criticism. I've known Brian a long time. I don't hold grudges and I can move on at any stage. And he said of the campaign ahead, I'll never just sit down and play with a low block and hope we can get a set play. I just won't manage that way. They're going to be on the front foot. So uh, journalists institutionalised from the Charlton era. Yeah, I suppose when he talks about the ex-players, I'm, I'm not so sure how much I'd put in that. I, I mean, any of the people that I've heard on talking, if they are referring to you know Ireland being successful, I think more so they were referring to McCarthy era or the good results we got under O'Neill. You don't hear, you know, I suppose Damien Laney is one of the key voices and, and others like that. You, you don't hear them referring back to, you know, we need to play like we did in the Charlton era. <laughs> I think no. it's more so kind of comments about, you know, the good results that we were able to achieve playing a different way under McCarthy and O'Neill. So I don't know how much I'd buy into that. Um, yeah, the one about take them, taking them on toe-to-toe, I'll never just sit back and play with a low block and hope we can get a set play. Um, <sighs> so brave it's it's and he means it he 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 absolutely means it and yet i can't but think that's exactly surely what we need to try and do in some of the games that are going to come up um so it's going to be very interesting to see how we get on against uh some of the countries we're facing in tough we're going to try and go toe-to-toe and and press them and try and outplay them you know yeah i mean i was damon delaney i would think i mean if anyone stresses the argument that stephen kenny doesn't have a monopoly on progressive football it's him he's saying well whether it's Stephen Kenny or someone else, we're going to play good football. We have to play good football. He's certainly not saying let's go back to Jack Charlton era. I think that's a and, and that's misrepresentation of what's yeah. being said, really, isn't it? Yeah, that that and that's that's my point. Yeah, I think. Look, you know, I'd say I didn't see the, the leading questions leading into this. It'd be interesting to hear the full thing. All right, but you know, this might be the end of a conversation that we're getting here, and he might have been kind of backed into a corner a little bit on the various different criticisms he's getting. But no, I, exactly. I haven't heard a whole lot of people. Nobody is 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 harping back to that. Um, but he's just coming out swinging really a little bit, isn't he? Coming out swinging a bit. Yeah, I guess the irony is that. He's speaking about people in the media, past players being institutionalised and his refusal to play a low block ever would be probably um, part of the reason why some of those very people, some of those media professionals and ex-players would suggest that Kenny is almost institutionalised or that he is uh, so steadfast in his own ideology that it lacks pragmatism and that actually frustrates a lot of the people that he seems to be hitting out at. So it's a vicious cycle. In a way, I agree with Shane. It's I find it fascinating that he is so um, almost belligerent in his insistence in, in his insistence that uh, Ireland do try to play on the front foot. And I guess to an extent, you probably require that belligerence if you are going to revolutionise something or overhaul something and almost change the footballing DNA of a country in a way, at least on a, a national team level. But at the same time, looking at that European qualification group upon which you'd imagine his tenure will hinge. God, I'd love if he used a little bit of pragmatism, even if it was just for his own sake, because I actually, for the most part, have have really enjoyed watching Ireland over the last couple of years. I don't go into international breaks anymore thinking, oh, you know, what a 
pain in the hoop this is like a break from the Premier League back to the sort of monotony of watching Ireland play Georgia or uh, mm. or more likely than not uh, Oman I actually am enthused every time the breaks come around but and for that reason I'd like to like it to continue I'd love to see Kenny prove everybody wrong who has doubted him but I do think uh, low block might be required if yeah, that is like, to be the case over like, the coming months like you say he, he is literally giving kind of fuel to his critics by saying I will never sit just sit back and play with a low block. I mean, how can you say you will never do anything when it comes to to a football match? I would regard my playing style or beliefs, Joe, to be pretty possession based and and pretty front front foot kind of stuff. But believe it or not, a team I managed once managed to beat a Stephen Kenny team once when I was Galway manager, and we played a low block for ninety minutes. We got our first shot and target in the ninety first minute, and we won the game one nil. Now it was as ugly as hell, and it's not the way I want to play every week. But it, it's probably the most famous win I can put to my name, and it required a certain style of play. And you can't write off any style of play before you you know what the requirements of of each and every game are. Just just on that quote, I suppose as well, like. He says, I'll never just sit down and play with a low block and hope we can get a set play. Uh, and maybe that uh, additional line there about hoping we can get a set play adds a layer of context to it, which is that maybe he's not saying, I will never play a low block ever, but that even if we do deploy a low block, there will be actual transition, there will game. be counter-attacking. Yeah. And, and like we've seen that from Ireland to a degree, I think, where at times under Kenny, they've probably been at their best on the counter and struggle a little bit when facing against a low block. So maybe we're making too much of out of one individual line Actually, to be yeah, fair. I think, I think we are segueing into counter-attacking outfit increasingly you know you gave a lamb to the slaughter sigh there when you talked about him not playing a low block last year I thought <laughs> yeah it's hard to oh, hard to avoid giving that sigh there alright <laughs> so it is no look like like Gavin says it's it's it, watching I've, I've argued the exact other side of the coin only recently on here with, with you guys saying that we're just it's, um, I really I enjoy going to Ireland games more than ever at the moment um but I would have thought that I would I would expect to rock up to the Aviva next year for one or two of those games and see an Irish team that's perched on the edge of its own 18 in our box and happy to play with 20% possession and, and, and hit on the counter. That would be my expectation. I would think so. Plenty of Chelsea-Manchester United reaction on the front pages as well. So as for coverage within, there are pieces on the game and then... Naturally enough, there are pieces talking about people who were talking about the game because that is uh, often the most entertaining aspect. Although it was a very good game, it must be said. But uh, for instance, page five of the Sunday Times, Peter Wilson. Tunnel tantrum uh, showed he cares. Fiery Roy Keane defends absent star. So Roy Keane and Gary Neville, both former Manchester United captains involved in heated debate uh, yesterday. So Keane very much still on the Ronaldo side. He always has been. Even at half time, it was interesting when they showed a Rashford chance. He just threw an equip that... Ronaldo probably would have scored that and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank started laughing. And then at full time, there was a proper debate. So Keane said to Neville, who was on co-commentary and then joined them in the studio afterwards, uh, Ten Hag was speaking about spirit after the game. Don't you think that's a message to Ronaldo? So he was arguing Ten Hag's not handling the situation uh, very well and he's sending barbed messages to Ronaldo. And he went on to say... He still wants to be the best in the world, Ronaldo. That's why I admire him. I'd be more worried if Ronaldo was sitting on the bench laughing his head off, not caring. I think the guy cares. This game is full of bluffers and he's not one of them. So Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank uh, was there as well. He tried to interrupt. He was, as Peter Wilson uh, writes here, he was quickly told by Keane to be quiet because he hadn't finished talking. (laughs) (laughs) So Hasselbank said that Ronaldo does not give enough back at the moment. Keane was quick to point out he scores every two games for United. He feels frustrated he hasn't been getting enough games. He walked down the tunnel. Players have done a lot worse at Manchester United. I think it happens. It's human nature. 
And Neville's point was, in effect, Roy, Manchester United are better without him. They get more points without him. They score more goals without him. That's a fact. And uh, he said he's got to leave. I would have been glad for him to leave um, in August. And he certainly should go in the next week or so. So that was the gist of the Neville Keane and to appoint Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank <laughs> debate. What were they actually that arguing was. about, though? Like, I say this as somebody who watched it and who heard every word of it, but yeah. what was the argument? Because both of them acknowledged that it was wrong that he walked down the tunnel early. They acknowledged that uh, Ten Hag was correct in punishing him. It was the only way to deal with it. Um, it felt as though they were making vaguely the same arguments, but at each other. And it was just a lot of speaking over each other. And I'm not being snooty like I'm not being one of those guys who thinks oh like Roy Keane shouting isn't entertainment because it is like I do find it compelling and I found it really funny how cross he was last night and it didn't feel like an act at all I thought it was genuine anger on his behalf but I also felt as though he was arguing with Neville who saw things probably 75% the same way that he actually did yeah I think they're on a a lot of aspects uh, coming out from the same point of view I mean I wouldn't be the only um, armchair psychologist who has wondered if Roy Keane is looking at the end of a great player at a great club and how he's been treated and starting to Absolutely. be triggered somewhat. You know, very, I mean, very, very maybe that's going on here at Touch as well. Yeah, but I, the, the, like Roy, Roy had... Roy has taken a position on this a, yeah. a while back. Took it early. Yeah, took it's it early down. and it's not like him to back down from an initial stance. So he's going to dig his heels in and he's going to row behind his argument regardless of, of what the, the facts or you know, whether the, the narrative has changed. I, I got the sense of Gary Neville was arguing or making his points based on logic. Um, Roy was making his points based on a stance that he had... T- I mean, at one stage where I can't remember what exactly Roy says, but but for all the world, Gary Neville gives the face or gives the kind of uh, facial expression of a guy who's in an argument with a five-year-old. Who, he's, you know, this guy's not going to listen to me no matter what I say, and I'm just going to have to give up here. And there was a bit of that going on. It was brilliant TV. I thought it was brilliant TV. Um, and it was, look, you look at well, what are they actually arguing over and, and, and the wider context. I suppose really what they're arguing over is... is has how well has Eric Ten Hag handled this whole situation? Mm. And I think he's handled it very, very well. I think when, he's handled when, it very when well. When Keane talks about the fact that Ronaldo's been disrespected, yeah. so like I even listened to Gary Neville's podcast afterwards and he was saying that, you know, various people I respect, I think he was talking about Keane, may have been talking about Ferdinand as well, uh, have said that Ronaldo was disrespected and Neville said, I don't see that really. I don't really see the disrespect either, I have to say. I, I, I really, really can't. Um, no, look, I think he's handled it very, very well. Again, you watch, for, for me, I watch, seri- I watch situations like this unfold with a coach's hat on and you're trying to see, right, how is this situation handled? You know, I've been there before and I'll probably be there again and I would have learned lessons from the way I would have handled it before. I would have had a player at Wexford Youths where we would have had a, f- a high-profile player and you have a falling out and we ended up having to go to the PFAI over it all and you're wondering, have I handled that right or wrong and all of that kind of thing. And and even more recently, I would have had a player and I would have asked the senior player for feedback after it and they would have said that they felt I let him, indulged him too much, if that makes sense, and let him away with too much. So you're always trying to see how, how well it's handled. And I think he's handled really, really well here. And I think, for me, Joe, there's no doubt he will have cemented the rest of the dressing room behind him um, very, very well in this situation. Very, very well. You look at at, at Arsenal, who are currently sitting second in, in the Premier League, and 
I was part of a Dundalk setup when we went to play Arsenal Arteta was one bad result away from the bullet mm. he's now you know absolutely adored by Arsenal fans I genuinely believe one of the biggest things that happened in his tenure was Aubameyang yeah. could, I, could I just say quickly Joe on the disrespect part of it with Ronaldo I think Keane was keen to stress he was trying to see it from Ronaldo's perspective where Ronaldo might feel disrespected even if objectively there was no act of disrespect oh, yeah. and I find like maybe we're sometimes we're quick to try and put ourselves in the, the boots in this instance of guys who are playing at this elite level of sport and they're not the same human beings as us whatsoever like the temptation often with something like this is to argue that Cristiano Ronaldo isn't bigger than Manchester United right it's it's like an old trope anytime something this like this rears its head when in reality he kind of is in a modern context like Cristiano Ronaldo is the main character in his own movie and he's been creating and crafting this script of his life for the last 20 years now he's in his third act and suddenly it's like the studio are getting involved and interfering with the fairy tale ending right Mm. the studio in this instance being united being ten hag and for the first time ever he's subordinate to other people and like this started to happen as well at juventus like neville made the point in his argument with Keane that leonardo benucci and giorgio chiellini had come in and sort of said like there was a bit of a feed the monster syndrome at ronaldo at juve if you look at their statistics when ronaldo was there they scored fewer goals in his three seasons than they had uh, prior to his arrival so like this has been slowly going off the rails as Ronaldo has aged and I feel as though his happy ending like there's no there's not going to be a sort of a rocky ending for him it's probably going to be like a, what's it, inside Lewin Davis or something where he just sort of drifts off and I don't think he's comfortable with that and I feel as though he probably does genuinely believe the world is against him and that to some extent Ten Hag is, is against him even when objectively you look at it and you know they are a better team without him yeah the Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. It's like it's interesting. Paul McGrath writes in the Sunday World, and he does take the position of the footballer of Ronaldo, as in his his overriding um, thought and all thing is just sympathy for Ronaldo. So the whole thing is like I just feel so sorry for him because I know where he's coming from, and he says. What Ronaldo is going through right now is panic, desolation, confusion. You feel terribly alone. You feel incredibly vulnerable. Honestly, it was an earth-shattering experience for me and I had nothing like Ronaldo's profile. He's going to say, the thought of losing everything, of no longer being able to do the stuff that set you apart from even the best of the rest can cause you to do the most self-destructive things. And there's no question that Ronaldo's behaviour is self-destructive. I mean, for him to not sense that against Spurs... Everybody at Old Trafford was maybe for the first time in several years realising, God, we're, we could be onto something here. Everybody was happy. Mm. <laughs> but, think, well, but, I, you know, I'm not going to sense that general mood. I'm going to hit the car and go. But, and then to re- release the statement saying, we'll be united again. And things will get, <laughs> like the statement was like, you know, look, things are bad now and heat of the moment, but like we'll be together. But everyone's like, we just beat Spurs. Like we are, mm. things are, things there's, are there's not a crisis here that needs to be fixed. <laughs> but again, it's kind of that modern context where... What I'm saying about Ronaldo being bigger than United will probably annoy a lot of United fans or football traditionalists. But like, if you think of it from, from Ronaldo's perspective, like he is being publicly humiliated. He has 490 something million followers on Instagram, right? Like United have about 60 million, I think. So just to put it into context, like the extent to which there's been a sort of a culture shift in the social media age, where a lot of football fans don't nail their colours to the mast of a particular club but follow individuals and Ronaldo is this like walking billboard and brand and this entire thing is being tarnished and like he is so 
he will be so cognizant after many years of having this level of global fame that he's been made to look like an agent in front of half a billion people. Like, what's that, like 7 or 8% of the global yeah. population? Uh, but for him, it's humiliation. It, it, Shane McGrath touches into this idea that he's having to confront the awful prospect now that his powers are dimming. And for someone like him, the dulling that comes with age is hard to countenance, uh, as well as his extravagant sporting gifts. His ego is also otherworldly. And I think that is the thing with Ronaldo. Like, for him to score 700 club goals... You can't have realistic ambitions. You can't have like can't a rational well, sense well of yourself. <laughs> no, you need to be deluded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need to. You, you Your ego needs to be out of control to do what he did in his career. So, for the first ninety-five percent of his life, Sorry, this yeah. insane self-image he had served him. Serves you well. And now, in the final five percent of his career, that's going to prevent him from saying, "Okay, I can do the Ryan Giggs role. I'll not play for four games, and then I'll go in and do." an hour or you know I'll, I'll, I'll segue into bit part Brian Robson you know great players would do that that's why as you said this is not going to be a smooth landing this where is like, does he go oh I don't know Qatar for two million a game or maybe France like, or, what is like, ego allowing though what is ego allowing to do, to do that I don't know may, do you know maybe look I, I agree with you this is not like, remember the Celtic Tiger said it's going to be a soft landing mm. <laughs> we're headed for the great oh, economic yeah. crash of 08 here like <laughs> he's, he's, he just he can't switch from being what he was for that long and we, that served him so well he can't switch into being oh best of luck Manga yeah. yep. high five and you know score some goals today and like, if you you say you use the good phrase when you said he, like his, his, his actions are self-sabotaging his own career at the moment no oh, doubt self-destructive yeah. if, if, if he if he comes on Last week against Spurs, okay, plays out the remaining minutes, does a big round of applause to all the supporters at the end with everybody else, right? He's on the bench yesterday. He almost definitely Definitely comes comes on on. when the game is in the balance, right? He potentially scores a winner. Again, we go around, we give the big round of applause. Almost every big club in Europe is going to want that version of Ronaldo. Yeah. The guy who's, as you said, the guy who's who's willing to be, you know, come on and win the game for you in the last 15, 20 minutes and is, you know, 100% behind the team it's whether he starts or not. It's too big a change He is the best of all time. Yeah. But that's actually... In his mind, he's the best of all time. And he's not and far off it in reality either, Joe, yeah. to be honest. He's not, he may not be wrong. You're talking, 15 minutes against Spurs? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll spit on your feet. Or fewer. And the thing is, being, let's say, one of the best of all time for the moment... He has become accustomed over the last few years. And we've seen in Instagram posts, for example, of his, where I don't know why I keep bringing up Instagram. I'm not on there that much. But like we've seen him, his obsession with his own statistics, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think part of his legacy is probably he sees that little Wikipedia entry down the bottom of the page where like he has the, the record for Champions League goals and that record is preserved until Erling Haaland surpasses it in 12 yeah. years' time. Maybe then he can go off to MLS and, and live out his days. I, I doubt it. But I think coming on for three minutes against Spurs or, or say even 15 he's probably looking at it oh so realistically another game without a goal like my goal is to get you so you're just try- like even statistically you're shafting me genuinely and I think yeah, and I think yeah. uh, a, a modern footballer do- does look at things like that and thinks oh so you know my goals to game average is just taking a hit here for what like so I can get a, a quick applause off the bench yeah. and that's not going to sit well but I might the one thing I would like to know and we don't know it is has Ten Hag sat down with Ronaldo face to face and laid out the plan properly to him and said, I see you playing here and here and that many minutes. I can't have you playing there because of X, Y and Z. But this is how I see the season. How does the other side of that conversation go? Well, it depends. I mean, if Ronaldo could stomach it and it was it was 
laid out to him in the correct way, maybe. But it's only, I mean, he may, was, may, may, may was still have said, like, get those papers away from me. I'm playing every game. I'm the best. But was it laid out to him as a, as a kind of cogent plan? Or is it just week to week? Mm. You're messing with my head here. Mm. I'm not playing. I'm playing. What's going on? It's just the communicate. We don't know the quality of communication which has gone on. And so maybe that's why off the bench, he's just like... Because he wasn't even there for pre-season. Like, this relationship has never been good. No, and I've heard people suggest that maybe Ten Hag has almost engineered this situation to make it even easier to shift him at the door. But I find that hard to believe, not because I don't believe Ten Hag would be that devious. I think he seems like a very intelligent man who would absolutely have the capacity to do it. But you're actually finding it a lot, or you're making it a lot more difficult to find a suitor for Ronaldo. Like... Who's going to want them at the moment? Apparently they couldn't in the summer anyway. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if you couldn't in the summer, are you going to deliberately try to make it even harder? Like by... Unless he's trying to blow the whole thing up. And just handshake. Get rid of this guy so I can get 50, 60, 70, 80 million to buy a replacement. Like I I don't... Maybe Ten Hag's saying, I don't want to nurse this guy through the next two, three years. No, I have no doubt he's saying that. I don't want a good relationship with him. Potentially, you know? So who knows? Yeah, and look, like I said, one thing I know you said it's it's different worldly almost. The one thing I challenge on is like we this this happens on a micro level mm. at every level in, in local June. Like when you're when you're playing Leinster Senior sure. League soccer, there's a there's a Ronaldo in your dressing room, and there's these kind of dynamics going on. And as I say, and then you ha- again. You know that that thing about everybody else. You know, there's there, there's the Ronaldo effect, but there's the everything else. Now, obviously, the obvious one at, at Manchester United is, is Bruno Fernandez. Like, it's ridiculous how better Bruno Fernandez is when when Ronaldo is not on the pitch because he quite simply feels, haha, now today I'm the man, and he steps out and he's a whole different guy. Um, do you think it's a, do you think it's purely that? I, I often find because people will make that argument based on Fernandez obviously underperforming when Ronaldo was there, but I even think stylistically Ronaldo isn't. The oh, right there's a bit of, of that in it as well, yeah. Because Bruno, like, Fernandez, like, I'm not saying it's the only pass he can play, but certainly his most effective pass is just a pass that splits the defence, usually in transition. And, like, Ronaldo isn't the counter-attacking threat he used to be the way a Rashford is. Like, Fernandez's crossing where Ronaldo would come to the fore is very hit and miss. So I actually honestly think they just don't even gel as players. But they probably actually like each other. Like, yeah. the suggestion has always been like, oh, well, they've, there's a clash of personalities and Fernandez doesn't feel like the man when yeah. Ronaldo's there. Nobody does, I guess. But and the, the one other point I'd make on it, Joe, just before we move off the counter, I've read three or four Ronaldo pieces. I'm not sure which one makes the point. I think it could be Tom Kershaw here in the Times, possibly. Um, like, the difference that that Casemiro equaliser makes in the narrative around this whole situation like it's unbelievable like we, we've literally gone from a, an injury time goal from the narrative being point proven United are useless without Ronaldo and if he had been on the field yesterday they would not have been beaten and Ten Hag is a clown and he needs to figure out a way to get Ronaldo back into it to there is no way United would have shown this amount of fighting spirit yesterday if Ronaldo was on the field and the fighting spirit has got them to draw like it's such such fine scoreboard margins. journalism alive and uh, well uh, Two other quick takeaways. Casemiro's a lovely player. Oh, yeah. Like he, I mean, you're right. Don't remember Graham Cena's kind of saying, look, he's a water carrier. He's far more than that. Maybe next to Modric he doesn't stand out. But in that Manchester United midfield, not since Michael Carrick have they had someone who can knit things together deep in their own half. I thought he was brilliant. But was a water carrier. And he would, look what happened when he left Real Madrid and, and went elsewhere. He became a, a superstar at, at the role that he not Casemiro said. Look, his intelligence level. His football oh, IQ, Joe. He's great on the ball. Oh. It's not talked about enough how good on the ball he is. So good, so yeah. good. Just And it, it's... I actually I, I read a piece there recently and he was the perfect example of it yesterday where they talk about 
everybody every everybody is obsessed in football and in coaching at the moment with doing things quicker, doing yeah. things quicker. Casemiro does things slower. He takes an extra touch on the ball where somebody else would have, you know, played a pass. He actually takes the extra touch, slows it down, and all of a sudden a new picture the picture changes in yeah. that one second that he's taking the extra touch, the picture changes and now a whole different oh, well, situation there, is, is on. There were times where any Manchester United fan watching certain situations last night was accustomed to oh this is where they lose the ball and they kept it and it was down to him and the other takeaway is Anthony is the biggest moan bag on a pitch (laughs) of all time and he had like he wouldn't go at Dallow completely it was like a 50-50 they mistook who was going to go for a ball that was kind of in between them and he launches at Dallow this guy's only in the place five minutes (laughs) And so he was doing this continuously, but then he met his match in the second half in Bruno Fernandes. <laughs> and there was a point where the two of them, there was a pressing thing and it, it didn't work out and he had to go at Bruno. And as the play was continuing, they are screaming at each other mm. for another 20, 30 seconds because Bruno's not backing down either. So uh, that could be a Kieran Dyer. <laughs> as you said Lee Bowyer moment as you said at the start there's so much going on here that it does kind of uh, take away from the game itself they, they kind of the wannabe tactician in me can't let, let us pass off without saying like so so unusual to see a substitution made so early in the game in the manner that Chelsea did and it, to have such a massive impact on the game um, I know Graham Potter has that reputation but Jesus, 35 minutes Joe that's extreme even by his standards and literally went from what was it 5-3-2 to a 4-4-2 diamond I mean you couldn't rip up plan A anymore and, and it worked plan, instantly oh, and it worked instantly yeah. instantly a, it was, a whole it was new game after yeah. it um, I just think they're going to be absolutely intriguing to watch for the rest yeah. of the season they really really are I mean, I didn't like it because it killed the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus, Potter. Yeah, yeah. Bruin, this is a spectacle. End end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's uh, the football over the weekend then. Uh, the boxing, I know, caught your eye. So uh, on two fronts, really, there are a couple of pieces about Katie Taylor fights next Saturday in London against an opponent that she will completely outclass. And it seems everybody is just bemoaning the fact that the Serrano rematch is not going to happen mm. anytime soon. And then there are a couple of pieces as well. And uh, noting the fact... Ireland did win three gold medals at the European Championships. We just just take this totally for granted. Yeah, well, it's inconveniently timed in relation to the Sundays as well in that it only happened yesterday. Um, Yeah, we might as well start there. It's it's bigger news, really, than Taylor's fight, and we can come back to that. Mick Foley covers them both in the Times. I guess it can be taken for granted the extent to which the boxers are successful on an international stage, but... For a team to win seven medals at the European Championships, even the European Championships lacking Russian competitors in this instance, when their previous record was three, is obviously phenomenal statistically. And I think it's just even the little bits of detail between the lines, if you like, like Kelly Harrington adding European gold to an already phenomenal uh, trophy cabinet. And it completes the set for her. Like She's been a world champion in the past. She's obviously been an Olympic champion, but she'd previously gotten bronze and silver at the Europeans. Injury sort of thwarted her in 2019. She becomes only the second ever Irish fighter after Taylor to have won gold at all three majors or, or the three biggest competitions that you can enter as an amateur boxer. And then, like speaking of hat-tricks, Amy Broadhurst, she's a world champion, European champion and Commonwealth champion within the space of, God, nine, ten months. If even know, it's a real bursting on the scene, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. Incredible. And like she's been plugging away for years at underage, winning, winning European medals at underage level. She's a phenomenal talent. She's almost, in a strange way, playing a similar role to the one that Harrington played when Taylor was part of the Irish fold in that 
Brawlers has won these all oh, the more remarkably three kilograms north of her natural weight. Like she would probably prefer to be fighting at lightweight. It's just that Harrington remains the incumbent there, and there's only going to be one Olympic spot between them. So that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out yeah. over the next while. And then you have Eva Rourke, back to back European champion. Just phenomenal by her as well. She won Stranger Gold earlier this year. Her sister, Lisa O'Rourke, is a world champion and plays midfield for Roscommon. So just imagine being their cousin in Castlereagh at Christmas dinner. Like, you know, just <laughs> what would you... I just wouldn't go. You know what I mean? I, but you know what? Like, the, I suppose like the, to, to tie it together as well, uh, Zorantia, the coach, doesn't tend to feature in these sorts of conversations. And like he arrived in Ireland in 2003 yeah. from Georgia. Uh, he's been the mastermind really behind over 150 major medals in those 19 years. I was just going to say, so Bernard Dunn has uh, now departed to India. Billy Walsh, as we know, left all in acrimonious circumstances, all uh, amidst uh, accusations of the association being badly run. Zor has been the constant and the medals have remained constant. Is it too simplistic to say Zor is the one that we need to really be watching? If he ever goes, then things will change? No, I I don't think it's too simplistic at all. I think it's accurate. Uh, I think that to uh, the credit of Walsh, to the credit of Dunn, uh, you could make a strong argument that it could be even better if both of them were still involved. Um, And I think that Zor is absolutely, with the help of with the help of John Conlon, Dimitri Dimitruk, like there's a coaching team there. Uh, But Antia is probably the best boxing coach in the world, and Ireland. Um, as a sporting nation is blessed to have him the fact that he rocked up here like it's a I won't spend too long on it but it's a fascinating backstory even because they Antia applied for the same job that Walsh eventually got in 2003 Antia didn't get the gig but Gary Keegan who had just set up the Irish High Performance Unit uh, was so impressed by his interview which was done through a translator that he went and sought funding to basically add a head coach to the director of high performance so that Walsh and Antia could work in tandem. And it's one of the best decisions in the history of Irish sport. Like, sure he's is. been at the helm for uh, more than a quarter of our Olympic medals as a free independent country. So it's not bad going. I know. Like, Zor, we hardly know you as well. You know, that's the <laughs> other aspect. Like, And he's a massive personality behind the scenes. Sure. He does get a little bit camera shy, but the boxers are absolutely crazy about it. They him. need to drag him onto the A show some night and give him a standing uh, no. ovation. Yeah, All, yeah. Have all the boxers there who've won it medals be, under Zor. Well, do you know what? When it comes to um, end of year awards and, and sports personalities and things like that, there's a coach of the year award and Vera Power's going to get it, if we're honest, and I wouldn't begrudge her whatsoever. Like, and uh, I, I would say, like, if we were just looking at it objectively from a, a sporting achievement, even this year, looking at what Andy has coached Irish boxers towards uh, two world goals yeah nine European medals uh, crazy like I I actually don't even think there should be an argument he's overlooked I think it's true to say Um, just on the Katie Taylor pieces so I see Mick Foley here page 18 of the Sunday Times and on page 65 of the Mail on Sunday Mark Gallagher both writing about the same thing Really, it's that um, Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano are both uh, fighting at the moment. So Serrano in Manchester uh, fighting Sarah Moffat and Katie Taylor is fighting on Saturday on Dazone. Her Sky Sports link has, has ended now. Katie Taylor fights Karen Elizabeth Carvajal on Saturday. So Mick Foley makes the point that in the pound for pound listings, Taylor is ranked number one, Serrano's number two. Uh, Moffat, who Serrano fought, is 21. And then Carbajal, who Taylor is fighting on Saturday, is 229. He says, this is the company Taylor and Serrano are obliged to keep when they're apart. And so, he, you know, Mick Foley paints about the picture of Taylor retreated to the obscurity of rural Connecticut after their fight in Madison Square Garden. Serrano 
bought her dream truck, a couple of Rolex watches and signed the paperwork on a house in Puerto Rico. Uh, Taylor was back in the gym three days later. He says her social media channels depicted a summer that was dotted with pictures with family back home. But mostly it was gym work, sometimes captioned by a mix of motivational catchphrases and Bible verse. And that was how Taylor uh, spent the summer, really. She did buy a speedboat last year as well. Did she? She does. Oh, it does mention a speedboat. I just presume she'd rented a speedboat. Oh, she bought it, yeah. We're talking to her about it and she said that she has to go out with friends. So she goes out, um, I think it's on a lake in Connecticut where she lives and it's in search of just the tranquility of being on the water, but she can't go on her own yet because she didn't know how to moor it okay. when she came back in. That's so, more yeah. like her, doesn't it? Tranquility. Yeah, I, uh, for a second I thought she was, you know. <laughs> and to be fair... <laughs> Party boat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to be fair, Joe, even though there is, you've listed off all the stuff that, that Serana went and bought herself, uh, I, unlike Gavin, am far from a, a boxing expert, like I'm sure most of the listeners aren't, are not are probably in my corner rather than than Gav's in terms of our knowledge but she came across as a fantastic individual as a person whatever about her boxing Hmm. she came across as so so likeable I thought um, when she fought Taylor she really really did so look for the hard work she puts in she deserves all the stuff that she was able to buy herself there but yeah look this was the piece that grabbed my attention as as I say somebody who fleets in and out Hmm. of of boxing for the big events and, and not with the knowledge that Gav would have for me this was the the sporting event of the year by I know there's still two months to go, but I, I thought it was it was absolutely unbelievable. I, I've never seen a comeback in any sport to rival what, what Katie Taylor did on the night. It was incredible, incredible viewing. Yeah. Um and on that side of things you're saying absolutely, when do we get the rematch, bring it on and you know, if it's in if it is in Croke Park, if they could arrange it to be in Croke Park and he goes into a little bit of the ins and outs of yeah. why that may or may not happen, you know, I for one and many, many more would look to be there. Well, on the the only other thing I'd say, Joe, on yeah. the flip side, we haven't watched it that night. I don't know if I do want it to happen because I can't no. see any world in which she wins a rematch, to be honest with you. Well, Mark Mark Goller talks about that like how the initial enthusiasm has waned. So he said, within moments of the final bell, before everyone started to breathe normally again, the appetite was whetted for a rematch. Even Serrano and her promoter Jake Paul were swept up in the excitement. In the immediate aftermath, the pair were agreeable to come into Dublin for a second act. Such was the momentum, there was contact between Taylor's team and Crow Park about the prospect of staging it there. However, the initial enthusiasm from Serrano and Jake Paul soon started to wane. It took a long time for all parties to agree to a first bout and now it looks likely that if there is to be a rematch the negotiations will be even longer, even more protracted. Such as Taylor's appeal, there's a decent chance she could sell out Croker irrespective of her opponent but her team wants Serrano. And part of that seems to be Serrano now says you need me, let's pay up. I think a lot of um, people's interpretation of Serrano or the, the sort of forward-facing personality that we see on social media can get conf- conflated with the actual Amanda Serrano in the sense that she doesn't even have a phone, to my knowledge, or at least she's made a virtue of not having a smartphone for a long time. And her tweets are generally sent by her manager, Jordan Maldonado. So the person that we saw in New York, and I was lucky enough to be over there for the fight and during the week, is actually the Amanda Serrano who does want this rematch. But she, like everybody else, has a team around her who see the sense in waiting and there's huge sense in waiting from their point of view like they Katie Taylor uh, beat Amanda Serrano fairly and squarely but by a hair's breadth and if you wait a year as they seem intent on doing Taylor's not going to be better next time around 
Now, there's an argument to be made that Serrano at 33-34 may not be better either. But, it, you know, if your money was on anybody, it would be on Serrano in that rematch. The reason why it hasn't come to fruition outside of that sort of tactical delay is that when the first fight was agreed and Mark Gallagher makes the point that it was protracted if the rematch negotiations are more protracted more protracted, it simply won't happen because Taylor will be about 42 and Serrano will be retired equally so but the reason why it isn't coming around more quickly this time is because a lot of the I guess a lot of the concessions made to Serrano's side of the equation in order to get her to take the first fight <laughs> sort of affected the rematch in that Matchroom were so keen to get the first one done it was like sure yeah you can do that in the rematch you can do this in the rematch and now when it's come to negotiating the rematch obviously Matchroom are trying to roll back on some of the okay. uh, promises they made and promises are pretty loose in boxing and it's actually Jake Paul who's pulled the plug in it rather than Serrano I saw Serrano on Instagram yesterday making the point on a video clip of Taylor discussing the prospect of a Croke Park fight saying like I'm still up for it like let's do it soon she seems keen again maybe that's Jordan Maldonado as I say but it's a decision that's been made uh, in her orbit rather than by her directly and one that will probably benefit her in the long run The uh, interesting questions for the Taylor camp and maybe for Katie Taylor herself more than anyone is say this drifts into next year say this drifts into 18 months does she say I've gone too far into decline I don't think she sees herself as being in decline. Um, I also don't think that she believes that she can go on for five or ten years or whatever she said over the last couple. I do believe she's probably starting to realise that she is taking a lot of punches, like particularly from Serrano, who hits extremely hard. Uh, she made the point in an interview with DAZN, the broadcaster that's going to be showing her fight next Saturday uh, during the week, that she doesn't want to be absorbing that kind of damage for the rest of her life, yeah. obviously but also that she hasn't fallen out of love with the sport uh, by any means. I think the issue facing Taylor and the people around her is that boxing has been so integral and so central to her life for so long that she probably doesn't know yet what she wants to do afterwards. That is an absolutely gigantic void. We hear it in elite sport all the time that people struggle with retirement, but a lot of these people at least have other interests. Like Katie Taylor might watch something on Netflix, but her life predominantly consists of her family and friends, church and boxing and boxing is probably 65-70% of that so to remove that from somebody's life without some sure. sort of a, a backup well, plan I, I was literally just about to, to read out the line because it's almost a line in its own within the piece that could nearly you know, justify a, a two page spread on its own in the Mick Foley piece it says how Taylor can ever make peace with the eventual sur- sundering of the link between boxing and her own identity as a person when retirement finally comes always lingers at the back of every tribute at her remorseless dedication and I mean that you know I remember seeing the remember the TV documentary or the documentary the Katie Taylor documentary mm. that was made at the time as well Ross Whitaker's yeah you, you know you'd worry for geez, the only worry, thing is worry a bit there you know her, her mm. like Brian Peters her manager Ross Enemoy her trainer her mother Bridget people around her Eddie Hearn included are cognizant of what we're talking about and they know that at some point she will need to step away. It just may need some kind of sitcom-style intervention banner across the living room saying, Katie, we need to talk to you uh, from all of them sure. to actually convince her of the reality herself. I, and I don't know that for sure. You know, what she says publicly may not reflect what she feels privately. I get the sense, personally, the rap on this set. I think next year could be her final year. You'd hate to see her go on too long, wouldn't you? Oh, jeez, yeah. nothing be worse than see her go on too long and end up losing yeah. her last two or three or something, you know? I sort of think she's going to be okay, you know? I think um, there's such a person of substance there. She's comfortable in her own skin. 
she's got her faith I think she knows herself I think if you have an ability to get out in the speedboat and be tranquil with yourself and also she's not doing this for popularity and all the endorphins that go with that she does it because she loves the craft of boxing so I don't see why there's any reason why she can have great fulfilment still staying in the sport as a coach and being up the crack of dawn and working with fighters she's passionate about or finding something I mean sure she'll miss it but like I'd be worried about others before her it's often said about her and I think we need to give her more credit in a way you know my question would be like like a great player who maybe struggles when they go into management yeah. could, could she struggle with if she if, if that boxer that she coaches doesn't have the same single mindedness and dedication to it could could she struggle with she, well, she's going to need to find a good one if she's going to be unlike coaching, you know? Roy Keane being stuck at Ipswich I would dare say she'll be able to find Get some the good best, ones yeah, I would think so you know yeah yeah um, but who knows? Who knows? I could be wrong. Like we're all guessing from afar. You know? No, totally. But you are right, and like she's a she's a highly intelligent person at that. We don't hear a great deal from her, but like as you say, she's a person of substance. Yeah. I've seen her at events around children where you would feel as though for her to be able to transition into even a not necessarily like a full time coaching role, but some kind of advisory capacity, have her name on a gym, something like yeah. that, and and like she's marvelous around kids. They love her, and she gravitates towards them. That would be great. I, it's just I don't know if that will be enough. enough. I, it may not be. But she's not, she might not, tell us something. She's not like a footballer who'll miss the crowd two or three times a week. It's like her life in Connecticut is fairly... I think she might miss the crowd, though, where, you know, even if it's only every three or four months. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, Madison Square Garden is going to be pretty tough to top. And the fact that she said after that fight with Serrano, like, I, I think this is the best moment of my career, probably... Um, I suppose I put it into put into context two things for me, like the fact that she was appreciative of the moment and that she could soak it in and that she was probably cognizant that it won't get much better than this. Yeah. And that, and that by extension to that, she probably saw an end in sight because if you, if you can only recreate this once or twice more, one example being Croke Park, then it probably does start to feel finite in your mind. And listen, maybe she's thinking sure. of the future more so than we are. And we also, as you said, we also know very little of her intentions away from sport. I mean, has she, you know, does she have intentions of um, a family? Does she, you know, those kind of things obviously are going to play massively yeah, yeah. into that. I, know, I mean, look, her financial landscape has been transformed as well. This isn't an amateur who's like, well, now I've got to get a job. I mean, um, in that many respects, life looks very good. The future looks good. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. From Katie Taylor to Roddy Collins. <laughs> hey, there's a boxing link there as well. There is, there is. <laughs> yeah, just about. Um, yeah, Joe Brawley. Joe Brawley does a, a review of uh, The Rod Father. Two thumbs up, I would say. <laughs> Two he's, thumbs he's, up. He's a big fan of the he book. He is. He's a big, big fan of it. It's a strange topic for Joe Brawley to be writing about and... Uh, you know, not the kind of thing I would have expected to open up the the, the Sindo and, and see Joe Brody writing about how much he enjoyed uh, Roddy's book. I haven't got there yet, Joe, for the simple reason that um, I'm waiting for the audiobook to come out because I believe Roddy is going to read the audiobook itself, um, which I think will be quite enjoyable. From memory, apparently, he'll just start talking. <laughs> <laughs> Ad lib, <laughs> make it up as he goes along. Um, different book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be a very, very different experience. 
sense. But uh, no, look. Over all you to do things in the audiobook, like, and come here, the lawyers wouldn't let me put this bit in, but I'll tell you what really happened there. <laughs> I wouldn't put it, it past them. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them, so I wouldn't. Um, no, look, I, I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't go too much into, into Broly's uh, actual piece on it. Um, I might find one or two of the, the more uh, entertaining excerpts from it, but I just, I, I, I think. Roddy himself, um, love him or loathe him, he is a giant personality uh, in Irish football. Um, you know, you can't, you certainly can't deny that. Um, and he is still talked about, re- still talked about uh, long after kind of the biggest achievements that he's had in football. He's he's unique in that I don't think anybody who knows him remotely could ever we're now in an area where everything is about like I started talking about Graham Potter there a few minutes ago you know and that kind of tactical intrigue and you can imagine Graham Potter spends much longer planning his training session than the training session ever takes to be honest with you level that's not that's not Roddy uh, you can't ever imagine Roddy sitting down and, and with the pen and paper out and, and planning uh, uh, you know the, the intricacies of a training session but he was a massive personality and I'll tell you what he did better than anybody Joe was like with everything that goes on in football and managing a football team, people tend to forget that still, by a million miles, the biggest part of whether you're going to be successful or not is your ability to sign players. It's, it, it will dictate how you do above anything else. How good you're on a training ground, you know, and everything maybe bar your budget, all right? Roddy was superb at finding players talking them into signing for him and then getting the most out of them. I would have been managing in the first division the year he won the first division with Nathlone Town that would have started the season 25, 33, 50 to 1 to win the first division and they went and won it quite comfortably and that was because he managed to talk players who should be at a much higher level into signing for Athlone Town. However he did it, I don't know, because I don't think he had that big of a budget. He, his ability to brainwash people almost with the, this, this, just the charisma and the stories and the, the arm around the shoulder. And people, I think his, this is probably, people want to be around him. Mm. Mm-hmm. They want to be part of what he's doing. They want to be around him. And he managed to do that. And he actually, at this, that, that season, he was doing a weekly piece with yourselves. He was coming on once a week with yourselves. And it came down to themselves and Longford Town um, kind of head-to-head towards the end of that season. Athlone had a bit of a lead, but Longford were trying to catch them. And he came on here on the Tuesday, I think it was. They were playing each other on the Friday night. And I don't know whether it was, I can't remember which of you was interviewing him, but one of them said, you know, and you've got a big game against Longford this Friday night. That one will probably decide, oh yeah, no, I mean, we're going to win that one. We'll probably win that one three or four nil, to be honest with you, so we will. <laughs> he literally said, and I was driving along in the car going, what? you can't say that for numerous reasons you can't say that you're leaving yourself completely open to egg in your face you're motivating the opposition this is the wrong thing to say in every way mm. they won the game 3 or 4 nil. <laughs> Roddy looks an absolute hero but like he would you know he was just the kind of personality who would do and say things and you know, even just chatting to him after a game you just enjoyed being around him you yeah. really enjoyed being around him and I can't wait to like the book will teach me little to nothing I would think about certainly coaching will teach me a bit about man management I would think alright but I just I just from an entertainment point of view I just can't really wait for it to, uh, to come out with the audio version Joe there's a nice excerpt where he tried to teach Don Howe a little bit about football coaching when he was uh, being scouted by Arsenal uh, later Arsenal scouted him and it was there that Roddy first demonstrated the self-destructive honesty that ultimately derailed his soccer career Don Howe Arsenal's head coach was footballing royalty as Roddy who had been scouted from the Stella Maris club in, in Dublin put it 
Don, Don didn't appreciate it when I started questioning some of his ideas. Turns out that having been assistant manager when Arsenal won the double in 1971, Howe had little or no interest in how Jimmy Brannigan had done things at Stella Maris. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's good um, well you're flicking pages there there's another very on. quick one about uh, when he first met his wife Caroline um, which by the way I, I suspect there's a lot of heart in this book as well oh for sure and to, be, to Broly's credit um, he's quoting a letter that Roddy wrote to Caroline but he says I won't spoil it for you just the lines I want you to think of me all day and night because I'm thinking of you all day and night uh, I swear I will not go off with any girls I hope you are studying hard because if I don't get the football, you will have to get the leaving. <laughs> uh, why don't we write letters anymore to each other, huh? <laughs> Romantic. Hey, speak for Romantic yourself. Uh, to blitz through a few um, pieces then and we'll get to some others that you guys have picked out. For instance, there's a little bit of cycling in the papers. You've got Mark Gallagher, page 60 of the Mail on Sunday, spoken to Dan Martin about his new book and invariably... Um, the issue of doping comes up and there's a parallel with the Paul Kimmage piece in the Sunday Independence. So uh, the new book is called Chased by Pandas, My Life in the Mysterious World of Cycling. And what Dan Martin says there is your options when you go into cycling are A, practice the sport in a despondent and defeatist state of mind. B, quit the sport. C, turn to doping. Or D, avoid thinking about it. I chose option D. I knew doping was taking place, but I didn't let knowing it taint my uh, way of thinking. And uh, he goes on to be interviewed by Mark Galler and he says that's the truth he says down a phone line from Andorra maybe guys knew not to offer me anything but it didn't come into my orbit Uh, but as I say in the book I knew it was taking place I just wasn't it just wasn't taking place near me is it still going on nobody's ever going to be able to say that it's not in any sport you're never going to completely eliminate cheating but I know that guys can compete cleanly in the sport because I was able to compete if guys like myself are still able to compete then the sport is doing something right uh, Paul Kimmage is remembering um, 1998 because of the, obviously there's talk now the tour uh, coming back uh, the Festina scandal of 98 and the fallout from that uh, there was promises made he, he remembers uh, November 98 Jean-Marie Leblanc director of the Tour de France speaking before the Palais de Congress in Paris and an impassioned speech about the future of the race and how it was going to be done clean and uh, we, we have to change things and of course Lance Armstrong wins the following year and he's 6 won by 2004 and um, Kimmage's reference, references uh, Paul Kimmage's re- references Dan Martin's book as well uh, an interview he did with him previously as well where Dan Martin did talk about taking uh, Tramadol once it scared the crap out of me when the Giro I pushed so hard made myself so sick it really terrified me and Kimmage says the only reason you were doing it was to enhance your performance yeah that's the only reason you were doing it yeah and Paul writes, I guess we all like to pretend our SH1T doesn't smell. Um, to be fair to Dan Martin, he's saying that was a one-off, the tramadol, and there was a TUE potentially for an inhaler as well. But in the main, he's obviously saying he didn't uh, cross any lines. But Paul finishes by saying, this is in light of the tour coming to Dublin. The point of all this? Well, 24 years have passed since the tour started in Dublin and we're about to gift a fortune, 20 to 30 million, according to Jack Chambers, to the same people who made clowns of us the last time. Are they still doping? Can a clean rider win? Has the sport really changed? We have absolutely no idea. But the thing that grates most is that we don't actually care. So that's um, Paul Kimmage's point. I think it's pretty 
true enough of people's attitudes to the Tour de France coming to Dublin. People will turn up, they'll watch the riders whiz by, it'll be a day out, the tourism people will be happy, there'll be a suspicion of doping, but, you know. Can't see people getting overly invested in, in it one way or another. No, I wouldn't think so. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. So there's cycling there. There is uh, John Green, page 20 of the Sunday Independence. You picked this out, Shane. Yeah, I've got a bit of, I suppose, the fact that I've got skin a bit of skin in the game on this one, Joe, as you say. Yeah. We've talked about this uh, every six months on the show for a decade. <laughs> I kid you not. The Daily Mile, which was um, initiated by Elaine Wiley. Again, famous story. Scottish teacher realised how completely unfit her class were in Scotland. And she said, well, you're going to run for 15 minutes every day. And the thing spread like wildfire initially through Scotland. We now, by the way, have uh, 15,000 schools in 87 countries. 3.75 million children have registered for that daily mile, running for 15 minutes a day. Uh, I mean, this has now been going on for so long that Elaine is now retired. And this is like her full time uh, gig. But John Green does the, uh, I think, the appropriate thing. And he, and he lists out where Ireland is in the obesity rankings, adults and children, talks to Niall Moyna. It's not good. We had Neil Martin in the studio. And, and one of the big parts of the interview was really trying to hammer home just how little PE our children do in comparison with other areas or other countries in Europe. And, and there was a, a commitment to do something about it. I don't know where we are in that commitment. I'm sure other things have, have gotten in the way, but we're, we're well down the ranking list. And, I mean, increasingly in society, especially wintertime, dark evenings, long days, and, and very, you know, this is a social and economic issue as well. The real intervention the state could make is through schools. Without a doubt, 100% through the schools. And that that is my day job at the moment, Joe, is I'm, I'm in the schools five days a week around Portlaoise Town. Portlaoise is a huge population. And... I'm in the schools coaching and taking half-hour classes with the various different class, uh, people in there. Um, and it's under the guise of GA activity, but it, hell of, with, particularly with the younger ones, it doesn't resemble hurling or Gaelic football in any you way. Just you just haven't soccer, do you? Just, no, no, not that either. <laughs> definitely not. You'll get me the sack now. No, no. Don't pick it up. Read it. <laughs> yeah. Ground football, yeah. Um, I lost there. <laughs> no, look, we're, we're, you're working on what they call FMS, fundamental movement skills. So yeah, you're in decline, but, I'm told. The which? The, oh, those they are the fundamental oh, skills. It, it, really, are in but that's because I mean, to, I'm going to sound ridiculously old, but that that is almost solely down to consoles, computer consoles, and and smartphones and all that kind of thing. Like my young fella is asking for uh, a Nintendo from Santa Claus. He's he's looking at potentially getting his first Nintendo this December, and I am terrified. That young fella lives on his trampoline. I am terrified how much time he is going to, how much of a decrease there is going to be in the amount of time he spends on the trampoline. To Terrified the, To of the it. extent that, like, there might be a shortage in the North Pole of Nintendos. <laughs> no, not, not, uh, I'm sure Santa Claus will manage to get his hands on one, all right, but there'll be agreements put in place in terms of how much Nintendo yeah. equals how much trampoline or, or well, sport Shane, in the back. you know garden. what happens to those agreements, so best to look at that, mate. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how, we'll see how all that works out. No, but it's, it's really serious. I it mean, is. We're, we're, it's proper crisis unfolding. Look, I did I did a, a big bit of research this morning, which was to ask him what's the crack with the mile a day in his school. Um, and he says, yep, yeah, they, they do do it pretty much every day, um, whether allowing. He said they don't, the teachers, he said last year's teacher 
actually ask them to go and jog around and do a few laps of it, whereas this year's teacher says you can do that. Or if 10 of the boys want to play 5v5 soccer for that 15-minute break, they they now call it a a 15-minute movement break. So if you want to play a game of sports, you can play a game of sports. If you just want to go for a few laps around the school, go for a few laps around the school. Um, But yeah, they would do that. They do that twice a day, he tells me, um, aside from what they call small break and big break. Shane, it's the best half hour of their day. Oh, without a doubt. And, And this piece goes on to stress all of obviously the, the psychological benefits the, all the benefits away from just the fact that obviously it's ridiculously healthy for them mm. um, but in terms of you know friendships and all of that kind of thing like we also established one of the um, the junior park runs in our town just this year Joe as well and again you know another thing for because obviously I am heavily involved in sport but you are conscious that so many people aren't because sport as the point is made here is inherently competitive and a lot of kids, you know, as soon as they hear a competition, no, 100%. don't want to have anything to do with it. So the, we brought in the, the park run. Believe it or not, this morning's is the first we've had to, we, we established it in June. This morning's is the first we've had to call off since then because it was absolutely lashing at home when we were coming out. But we have the park run every Sunday morning um, in our place at half past nine. It's two kilometres. Some of them, Connor, my fella, is quite competitive. Some of them will run it and do the best they can. Others will jog around so slowly <laughs> that they're barely moving but they'll be chatting away to their best friend the whole way around it yeah. and there's still great benefits from it and, and, so, and sorry in a year's time they'll be jogging a bit more quickly they, they will yeah. of course 100% and, and the knock-on effects Joe then as well as that so our, our track thankfully is right beside the park so sure, there's not a, a single kid who comes to do the park run who doesn't then go from the park run into the park and best of luck trying to get them out of the park they're probably there for another hour so all of a sudden you know it's 11 o'clock and if you look at the young fella's Smartwatch or whatever they're called, he's four thousand, five thousand steps done by eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. Hallelujah! So, so for the day, I think with that aversion that some kids have at an early age to competitive sport, and this idea that if they have to play a game of soccer or basketball or whatever it might be, that they might be embarrassed in front of their peers. Yeah. Like it, it's crucial to do things like that where there is a more communal vibe and that there is no um, necessity to actually compete. And I also think, even possibly at an even earlier age, you know, when you're taught probably at got three or four that you need to brush your teeth and it just becomes a part of your daily routine. I think if if not necessarily sport, but physical activity was uh, stressed to kids in a, in a sort of a similar way, that it's just part of your daily routine from that age. Now, I'm not like I'm not making an original point here necessarily, but just that they, they wouldn't necessarily see it as sport and something in which they have to compete with people, but actually something that just benefits them from a very early stage in their lives, the same way brushing your teeth or not talking back to your parents or whatever. And just on the Santa thing, I mean, if promises may be broken to parents, but I've found um, a contract with Santa it means a lot more. <laughs> a little bit of a stipulation and uh, who knows. Well, the piece, looking at. piece points out we're up to ninth now in Europe for obesity, kids between five and nine. So it's not in a great situation, really. That's John Green. It's across two pages, pages 20 and 21 and uh, I mean, that's a big success story, though, to have 3.75 million children registered for the Daily Mile. I mean, from let's just do it in my classroom in Scotland to that in a decade is is quite something. It shows how change can be made pretty quickly. Well, on the uh, trying to make change pretty quickly point, it is Respect Referees Day. Weekend? Day. Day, I think, day, yeah. yeah. Pat's plan in the mail and, or in the Sunday world says this is just a PR thing. I mean, obviously it is. We could never respect him for a whole weekend. <laughs> uh, obviously it's a PR thing. Of course it is. Uh, that's the point. It's to raise awareness. Um, so you various people writing about this. 
Colm O'Rourke, page 13, Sunday in a Pen, and Tommy Conlon, page 12, Sunday Indo, Shane McGrann, the Mail on Sunday is touching on it as well. I mean, there's just so many uh, different approaches. Like Colm O'Rourke talks about a lack of accountability mm. at the root of ill discipline. Um, talks about, you know, if, if a mentor is doing it from the sideline, then the club need to get onto the mentor and get that sorted ASAP. If it's somebody in the crowd who's a baying ass from outside the wire, then those around that person may be saying say something. He says, uh, most of the time, the best people to do this are women. They might feel intimidated. But the quote attributed to Evan Burke applies here. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is that, is that good men, he puts in brackets, and women do nothing. Decent supporters have the power to rein in a lot of bad behaviour. And he also says there are more excuses now for young people's bad behaviour than in previous generations. Lack of parental control, shortage of money, no role models, etc. Nobody seems to understand two words, personal responsibility. It is the root of civilised societies. That's uh, some thoughts from Conor Bourke. Uh, Tommy Conlon, I I thought it was just it was just brilliantly written, I thought. Mm, Um, The point has probably been made numerous times before, but in effect, it's quite a long piece. But he's basically saying that. This is just the, you know, the, what makes the GEA great is also at the heart of this referee ill-discipline in many ways. He said the, the very essence of the organisation is the umbilical connection between home and game. You play the game not just for the game's sake, but for the community that you represent. The two strands inextricably interwoven. The game, therefore, transcends mere sport. And he talks about tribal expression. My parish against your parish. It's upon this rock the GEA built its church. But he says, if you play with fire, you get burnt. The same fuel that has propelled the GA to such power and stature as an organisation is the same fuel that explodes into malaise and violence when sparked by the slightest altercation. He said the GA has never been able to seriously eliminate this scourge because to do so would require a repudiation of its own core principle, its essential raison d'etre. There is a profound psychological conflict at the heart of this matter. He finishes by saying, so it would seem that as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. There shall be no returning to the... There shall be no returning of the genie to this particular bottle. I don't think it's right to say the GA can never get on top of this, but I do think there is absolutely something in Tommy Conlon's piece. I've been in soccer dressing rooms and GA dressing rooms uh, growing up right the way through to mid-twenties when work took over, and absolutely the uh, fuel of the GA dressing room was we're playing the lads from down the road, this is us against them. And you were charged going out and there was violence in the air. Whereas football, there was never that sense of tribalism. It was like first tackle, first pass, let's go out and play our game, that kind of stuff. Not to say there weren't issues in football matches as well. And there have definitely been issues on grassroots soccer sidelines for sure. But it didn't get the heart beating yeah, in the same almost, way. It's, it's almost a pro and a con of the GEA. That's that what he's saying. It means more. Yeah. It means more because it means more the ref is going to get more abuse. <laughs> and like a slight on you is a slight on the town. Yeah. So you better fight back. That yeah. kind of atmosphere. It's brilliantly written. Look, Joe, the only point I, I would make, and we're talking about referee day, like, is it possible to change it? It is possible to change it, but it absolutely has to be a, a bottom-up approach. I, I was at a coming among school game during the week, um, and I cannot understand. If, if I was the referee, and I wouldn't, I'd like to think I'm not that soft-skinned, if I was the referee, I cannot understand why the referee did, didn't just halt the game. Who was it, Li- Darren? Literally, yep. Yeah, literally just... So we're talking common on school. So we're fifth and sixth class kids. There was a gaggle of three dads standing together on the sideline who were so invested in this game of 11-year-olds 
kicking a Gaelic football around the field. It was absolutely ridiculous. And by God, help that referee if he made any decision that those three men weren't happy with. It's embarrassing, isn't it? It was ap- embarrassing to everybody about those three. The those three didn't seem to... And I got moved into a position where I was trying to get in the right line and kind of giving them looks as much as say, boys, can you hear yourselves here kind of a thing? And they looked at me as much as to acknowledge me. Like, will you just go on with mm. yourself there? And off they went again. But the o- for me, the only way that that stops is that the referee stops the game and refuses to continue with the game unless they are re- literally removed. And... and then the kids see how wrong this is and then maybe the kids' behaviour is slightly different when they're an adult. But it's not going to get fixed. Right? I understand that you have to be seen to try and do something fair play to them. But um, like this is something that I, I think is going to need 10, 15 years of fixing and it has to happen with. Like Pat's plan's right. Of course it is just a gimmicky PR weekend. You know, he's not wrong. But I guess they feel they have to do something. Because actually it's been as bad a year as I can remember. The litany of <laughs> yeah, trip, trip, I, I, trip of... Uh, issues. I've absolutely zero doubt that these issues have persisted for years. Like, but I wonder to what extent is it just that maybe the conversation is more prevalent that we hear more examples of it recently as well. In the sense that, um, because it because it's a talking point, because it's been discussed as a plague on the game, it's more accentuated when it actually mm. happens. And uh, well, it's a story now. You get to you, yeah. you stick it up, it gets clicks, and and often a mobile phone captures it as well, which adds a bit of. And I think maybe you know, arguably, more mobile phones are out now to capture those moments than might have been the case even last year. Like I'm not, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm not certain that there has been an increase necessarily, just an increase in our exposure to it. Mm. Yeah, uh, like I, what you were saying there, Shane, about like a potential solution being the referee stopping a game I think on the one hand I'd love to see that happen where you actually present the supposed adults on the sideline with no alternative but to shut the hell up otherwise your children's game can't actually proceed but equally it's probably a double-edged sword like where if those people were as brazen as you're making them out to be they may just continue to shout and, and it becomes a bigger scene and suddenly it's in the Indo or, or the 42 or whatever um, and, I, and I wonder is like it probably shouldn't actually rest on the referee's shoulders to intervene here I completely agree with you like that it has to be from the ground up I, I think Tommy's piece is interesting in the sense that it outlines absolutely brilliantly and quite poetically what the GAA means to people to a certain extent um, I suppose it's unfortunate that all of this spectacular guttural energy uh, it's directed towards the referee, you know, and you kind of think like, "Why, geez, why does the referee get it more than everybody else on the pitch?" It's like because he's not going to swing back at you, or he's not going to, you know what I mean? Like, and they're just lightning rods in that sort of an environment. Um, they, like, I don't. I think it's going to be a gradual process where personal responsibility, as Colm O'Rourke puts it, does come into it, but it's going to have to be drilled into people from an earlier age to just. I know it's a cliche, but just to have a little bit more respect for people, and if it becomes part of like I don't think necessarily that having respect for a referee from an early age up to senior will dilute in any way from all of the brilliance of the GA that Tommy outlines in his piece it's just it needs to start somewhere and I guess it's there mm. so uh, there's a <laughs> I just, there's just a quick mention but it was on page 10 of the Sunday Times and it's Vera Powell and so the qualification draw happened yesterday morning Ireland a very tough draw by the way so Nigeria and Australia hosts they are going to be good invariably and they're highly ranked anyway they're what 13th in the world and Olympic champions Canada and Vera Powell is making the point Nigeria by the way they're way better than their ranking out of pot four 
and they're ranking at 45. In Africa, when you're the highest team, you can only play against African teams ranked under. Winning 10 nil doesn't make you go up the rankings. On the, on the few occasions they play against teams from another continent like Europe, uh, high-level Asian countries or America, it's not enough to lift your ranking. We should note Nigeria are a very good team. If they had played in Europe, they would have qualified. And they're out of pot four, so it's going to be difficult. But the, <laughs> that caught my eye. The opportunism here. Oh, my God. So she said, it's funny. When you qualify, suddenly there are lots of players with Irish backgrounds. They email you and they weren't emailing you before you qualified. Yep. And she already goes as far as to she's kind of paving the way a little bit that we may see one or two of these uh, girls because she does say that we are only entertaining those who already hold Irish passports mm. uh, not those that are now going to go seeking Irish passports to to try and, and play for Ireland so you know it's a balancing act there you know the compet- you know trying to be as competitive as they possibly can be you look at Lily Ag and, and you know she was absolutely top class for, for Ireland from the time she came into the setup. Um, Lily Hag's background is 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 Cove. Uh, she was tra- she she spoke to the, our our Cove under seventeen girls before one of our sessions there last month, and you know you couldn't but like her um, and really warm to her. And she is now you feel she is now one hundred percent integrated into the Irish setup. You know how many of those were willing to try and 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 work with or make that happen with? You would think one maximum two more. Um, because obviously the people, who, the, the girls who have got us there, you know, she's got to surely have some sort of... I'm not, not sure about the wisdom of saying, I've had loads of emails now since we qualified, because now like the next camp when she unveils, <laughs> here's a new player. We're all going to be like, well, we know what happened here. I'm not sure if it's in that piece. I know Morris Brosnan was on that uh, call for us, or it may have been an in-person thing, I'm not sure, but uh, I saw a quote that we had where she qualifies a little bit by saying firstly about uh, the fact that uh, these women will have to already have an Irish <coughs> excuse me an Irish passport uh, but also that like <laughs> you know that she has also had an eye on some of these players arguably so it's like if one or two do surface I'm sure she can point towards the fact that well we actually already knew about this player it's okay. not necessarily yeah. somebody who emailed me um, 10 minutes after this exactly yeah 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 <laughs> I didn't check my phone in Hamden Park and say oh interesting <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but look, every little helps as well. And like, of course, uh, the introduction of a couple of new players will mean by definition that maybe some some players that were involved in the squad may say that that's elite sport Uh, in that sort of a group. Ireland are going to need every little bit of help that they can get. Yeah, Um, we're pretty much out of time. Very briefly mentioned Chris Hewton. Good interview, page 68, 69 of the Mail on Sunday. You're going to see him in Qatar, Chris Hewton, just if you weren't too sure what he's up to. He's the uh, technical advisor for Ghana. Uh, where his father left in the 1960s as well. So there's a, there's a familial, familial link to uh, Ghana. They did get to the World Cup quarterfinal in 2010, Luis Suarez handball situation. But uh, he, he talks, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, he's asked about the, um, the paucity still of non-white faces in dugouts across football. So 34% of players in the Football League are black. And there are five such managers in full-time positions throughout the pyramid. Vieira at Crystal Palace, Paul Lynch at Reading, Vincent Companies at Burnley, Sheffield Wednesday have a Darren Moore and Keith Curl is at Hartlepool. And that is it. Uh, more disturbingly, there are only two in Europe's big five leagues. The entire uh, big five leagues in European football, Patrick Vieira and Antoine Cumbert of Nantes. That amazed me. The second one, nearly yeah. more so. Mm. It's crazy, isn't you know, it? I would have thought across Europe there would have no. been a, in two. far more representation. Two. 
And I like between stories ten years ago, should we bring in the Rooney rule and all this? And there were like three in the football league, and now there's only five. So it actually hasn't improved. And he says huge lack of diversity, and it's not because the talent pool isn't there. I will never accept that. He says, I believe in the Rooney rule, but does it work? And do clubs implement it? Probably no. What happens is what always has happened. The clubs sack a manager, but they already have someone in place for the job. And uh, he talked about his own time in dealing with racism. He said, you experienced it. You got on with it. The support mechanisms were your home life, your family, your friends. That was the comfort zone. You would go back to them and try to process it. And he ought like such a, you get the impression, like a very steady, strong, very capable man was better able to process it. Not that he should have had to than most. And but like still had to go home and process it nonetheless you know it's not to say it didn't take a huge toll on him but yeah, um, the, the numbers are star- the numbers are even more stark than I would have thought Joe to be honest I with you I mean nine nine black managers in the history of the Premier League and that yeah. includes Chris Ramsey who had one game yeah um, that's amazing like, 30 years absolutely incredible <laughs> so you can't say there's not overt racism at place there but I don't no. but I don't know how you fix it I don't like again I don't think you can I can't see how you can implement a rule you know, maybe there are mechanisms around it, but you know, a club is going to want to employ a manager, and whoever they pick, they pick. Like they can't. I don't know how you can mm. force their hand in that sense. Mm. Well, it's a really good read. It's on page sixty-eight, sixty-nine, Mail on Sunday, and uh, like I said, he'll be in Qatar at the World Cup. Uh, we're out of time. Was there anything you, you desperately wanted to mention that you didn't get a chance to? As we no, all no, good on my and side anyway, Joe. Very good. Happy to avoid Munster's defeat, Joe. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, sorry, we had Munster Leinster stuff written down. Um, I don't know, it's the usual. Leinster were reasonable. Munster, no, no. Munster gave a good account of themselves. Munster are back. Munster are back. <laughs> Munster are back. Uh, Shane Keegan, co-rounders manager, and Gavin Casey, the 42. Thanks, fellas. Cheers, Cheers Joe. Cheers, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.